Hello, everybody. I'm Johnny Campbell, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of The Chopping Block. As always, trying to bring you some of the best minds in the world of DEI and also introduce to you all how DEI very much intersects with all that we do. I am here with a wonderful guest, a special guest, somebody who is right here in Tucson, Arizona with me. So you'd wonder why we weren't in person together, but down for consistency, you know, we're just going to keep it at a distance. <laughs> I'm here with my good friend, John Lee. Johnny Campbell. Johnny, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the chopping block. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, of course. I, I can't wait for you to share your story. I had the pleasure, by the way, for my listeners of hopping on to Johnny's uh, podcast um, and in sort of little interview series she does where I had a chance to share about visceral change and talk through a little bit about myself and my journey. And in that discussion, um, getting to know Johnny a little bit more, I said, you know, wow, you would be perfect for the chopping block. So Johnny's been gracious enough to to join us, and I can't wait for y'all to 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 hear some of our our discussion. Uh, so Johnny is a model, obviously, an <laughs> actress, and founder and co president of Differently Abled Entertainment, and you all are based right here in Tucson, yeah? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Go go ahead. If you got yeah, more if you want to do. Brand new, brand new nonprofit um that we were established in 2021, finally. And so yeah, yeah. we're just kind of yeah. getting out there. Good, yeah. And I'm I'm excited to talk more about about DAE, uh, sort of its genesis, where it comes from, and sort of um the vision. But first, let's let's get to know Johnny a little bit. Um so, Johnny, you hail from Nebraska. Is it Scott's Bluff in particular? Is that the area um, no, or around that area? That's the area. I'm from western Nebraska, the Panhandle. Western Nebraska. Um, yeah, I'm from Oshkosh, which is in Garden County. It's a little mm -hmm. um, little further into the Sand Hills than Scott's Bluff. Scott's Bluff is like the main city hub, like the closest big town that's around there. And Scott's Bluff isn't really even all that big. It's got like 20,000. So, oh, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> but Oshkosh, Oshkosh has like 900. So, you know, it was the big Born and raised? No, I was born okay. in Alaska. Um, oh. I lived up in Alaska mostly until I was like eight. And then, um, but we moved around a lot when I was growing up. And I lived, I uh, spent some time in Colorado and Montana. Um, mm. Yeah, a little bit of all over. But I say I'm from Nebraska because I moved down there. Well, we lived there for a little bit when I was in my grade school years, like third grade, okay. fourth grade, fifth grade. And then I was in Montana and then we were back in Nebraska for my eighth grade and mostly through high school. Although I spent a little bit of my freshman year at Camelback High School in in Phoenix, Arizona. So, my yeah, a little bit of all over. <laughs> now, I, I were your parents in the military? Uh, did folks just get different yeah, jobs no, across the country? Yeah, no, I wasn't in the I wasn't a military brat. I was a hippie kid. Okay. All right. Bouncing around a little bit. Okay. I got you. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit more than Johnny. Um, talk about just your experiences as a youth growing up in so many different environments and 
maybe a little bit about how that shaped the person who became Johnny Campbell down the road. Um, really? Yeah, it totally has shaped who I am. And um, being in a lot of rural areas, um, like especially up in Alaska in the 80s, when it was still very, you know, kind of rugged and stuff like that and bluegrass festivals and like my memories is very nature oriented but I've lived around a lot of places that even though I guess we're getting taken over <laughs> like Alaska you know I mean it was in the process of like kind of colonization at that point in time because like sure. I mean I, I I've been like everywhere that I lived I've been around different um indigenous cultures and you know from okay. up in Alaska for the the Inuit and like learning about their cultures and just having um an appreciation for native cultures because I was around a lot of I myself just because I was born in Alaska I can claim that I'm an Alaska native um technically and I don't like agree that I'm like that I can claim that term um just because I was born there um having the background that I have but sure. it's given me an interesting perspective and when I was younger um you know uh my my mother is very much respectful of other cultures and and stuff like that and so you know growing up and and my dad was you know into hunting and stuff like that but also my dad wasn't just a trophy hunter you know I mean he hunt he hunted to to feed our family and sure. so yes. those were things that you know we could kind of learn and take from and you know and appreciate like kind of that way of living um because when I was growing up like in Alaska like we were clearing the property like there was no electricity we were hauling water like you know and like collecting berries and like my dad hunted and all that to like keep us fed you know I mean yeah. you're up in Alaska and there wasn't like I mean not that there wasn't any stores or anything like that because there were but still like if you were out kind of out in the boonies a little bit like getting to that stuff wasn't always that easy and so oh, you had to like really learn survival and so that was my younger years of growing up was kind of like living like now they kind of call it like living off the grid <laughs> but yeah, like, right right just like that was just how you know I was that's how I grew up when I was really little is oh. hauling water and no electricity and we had a generator and all that but that's because there weren't any power lines where I lived there weren't sure. paved roads now like I mean I left Alaska when I was eight I left Alaska in 1988 and now I've seen pictures because I mean I grew up um, more down in the Kenai Peninsula down around a little town called Kasilov. That's where I went to like kindergarten and stuff like that. Um, was it Tustamina Elementary School? <laughs> but uh, that's where I spent up until third grade was at Tustamina. And, you know, now I see pictures of the Kenai Peninsula. And like, I remember that highway between Kenai and Anchorage being like two lane and just really crappy. And I think now it's like a six lane highway or something, yeah. you know. And so, mm. and I haven't been back to Alaska since I was very young. And so I'm, I want to take my children back and I want to see it and see, but it's also, I don't know, it's just interesting. And that's given me a perspective as far as I've just lived in a lot of places. And then in Nebraska, you know, there's the Sioux 
are all around there, the Lakota and the Ogala, like down um, not far from Oshkosh is Ogallala. That's a city that's named after the, you know, the Ogala Sioux that sure. were drove away from there. Um, and so like, I've just, I've always kind of had an interest and a respect for a lot of different cultures and being around a lot of different places and then always right. kind of being the new kid and being an outcast and kind of being different. And when I moved down to the States from Alaska, I'd have people ask me if I lived in the igloo and yeah, like, right, right. These microaggressions like, pop. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so it's yeah. like, I know I lived in a, in a house. We didn't have electricity, but we had a house. But you had a house. And so, so it's, yeah. So you, you a follow-up question I had, you actually sort of touched on, which was whether or not living around in this case so many indigenous folks or in spaces that honor at least on paper right the the indigenous culture um if that impacted your understanding of culture and it sounds like it did and, and feel free to expand on that a little bit my my other question i wanted to ask you was sort of the ways in which you all lived off the grid as you sort of named as it would be the language to, today um did your peer group did your friend group um did it mirror that? Um, if I were to meet your friends at that point in time, would they also be folks who lived off the grid? Or um, so I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, uh, I'll pause, I'll come back around. Let me ask you that question. Your, your friend group and, and folks you find yourself surrounded by, were they also very much uh, off the grid? Or was it a nice little eclectic group? Or how did that show up for you coming up? It was pretty mixed when I was a kid because, um, yeah, at the time there was just, there was a lot of, you know, things that were getting built and stuff like that. I mean, Alaska at that point had only been a state for like 20 years, not even like, like someone yeah. I left, it was made a state. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so like all of these roads and electricity and all these things that people were building, you know, that was just starting to really happen. And mm. so, yeah, there was a lot of, other families that were living how my family's was living like that's a lot of my parents friends and stuff like that it was like and they'd all work together you know what I mean you go over and help clear your property and then you come over and you help clear our property and then we help build your house and then you help build our house I remember seeing like uh, at least four or five houses get built when I was growing up you know like and that my family right. helped be a part of building you know, and like the properties, you know, like cutting down the trees, clearing the property out to nothing to to be able to build a house, you know what I mean? And you think of, you can't just, it's not like when you come to Tucson and you find an empty lot, you know, or even out in the right. desert here where it's just kind of, I mean, there might be cactuses or whatever you have to clear out, right. you know, this Alaska, you know, forest that they're clearing, mm. <laughs> clearing out to, to build these roads and houses and all that. And so, right. yeah, it was a, it was a good mix because there were towns already established, like Anchorage was already pretty big. Kenai, yep. Sedatna, they were pretty big. You know, yep. there were there were towns. And so, but the people that were like going outside in those smaller towns and those other villages and stuff like that, there was still a lot of people that were running off of generators and hauling water yeah. and all that stuff because you didn't have a choice. There weren't any power lines up yet. They were still building all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, you know, Alaska is purchased sort of a hundred years before, almost it becomes a a state. So it's just used for 
in many ways military purposes, but also as a territory mm-hmm. in, in, in different ways. And so I'm hearing it sounds like folks are trying to play catch up now. Like, oh wait, we now we've added this 50th state. Now we have to folks have to have the privileges that come with being a state and courtesy of the 14th Amendment and other things that that, that go with that. So it's interesting to hear you really speak 20 years in from experience that. Yeah, this is very much still a, a work in progress as we engage. And I don't think many people realize that about about Alaska and even Hawaii. They came in the same year. Well, that it, you know, I'm they sorry to interrupt. Here. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just you just touched on something because yeah, it's like, but now they have all these um like survivor uh like uh reality TV shows of like living in Alaska, in the bush right? In Alaska. And it's because I mean, it's still kind of like that a little bit, although when I watch it it's just very comical to me like these shows because like like, I mean it's like you know like the whole city slickers thing there there's people up there now that like my dad like you know and my family like they had their purpose up there like they knew what they were doing you know what I mean like they went up there with some knowledge of how to take care of themselves and stuff and now there's people up there that just like they get up there thinking that it's going to be like a lot easier than what it is or a lot, whatever. And it's just, I watch some of those shows though, every now and then it just kind of just cracks me up, but yeah, that's where, I mean, Alaska is still like way behind everywhere else because I mean, really, I mean, uh, that's still only been, it hasn't even been a state for 50 or a hundred years, like, yeah, only no. like really 50 years. Right. So. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's yeah. a, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's something I think, a lot of folks don't realize and, and kind of kind of speed past. Um, and the, so, it was still like, like you said, I mean, yes, it's been a territory for a while, but it was still like, I mean, it was just barely being used. There wasn't a lot of stuff. That's right. And a lot of the native, you know, cultures that were there and the tribes and all that that were there, they were still like fully living their culture and their life. Yeah. It wasn't like down in the continental states where they've sure. been on reservations already for hundreds of years right you know right <laughs> right and so there's that dynamic too it was very different and i remember growing up like they were still there was there was fight back you know and and standing up against some of the stuff that were that they were trying to bring in because you know technology and all that but like the oil platforms and all that and i remember mm just hearing a lot of stuff about it because like on my mom's side they're very hippie-ish okay and so I had my aunt that was very much always like save the wells and no oil and all that and all that like 80s like raw that you know (laughs) was going on like that's what I grew up with on like that that side and then I had my dad who was the welder and the you know the guy that was getting the jobs building the oil you know platforms and stuff like that my my dad you know had a part in a lot of that stuff going up and so it's just I got to hear both sides of the argument going up and it gave me an interesting perspective yeah yeah for sure um so there there's there's certainly right an element of class at play here where you don't have access to, right, you're out of a generator, you said you didn't have electricity, uh, you talked about the wells, which indicates level of water and access to that. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a class discrepancy here at play where you don't have access to those privileges in the same way as maybe other white folks in Alaska might have had access to those privileges and other people in general. Um, 
did you ever find yourself as a kid, especially in particular, I know you said your parents sort of identified more sort of the hippie movement. And so maybe they saw the world a little bit differently in terms of what, what satisfaction looked like and what happiness was. Did you ever find yourself saying, why, why me, why us, why, why don't we have uh, electricity and, um, you know, all my other friends do. And did you find yourself a little challenged by that disgruntled or did you, did you see this as this is the way of life and this is how I, I sort of interpret the world as I move forward. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, cause like we had a generator and stuff like that. So it's not like we never had any electricity. It was just, we had to use it sparingly. Sure. and stuff like that but like yeah going out to the outhouse at like three o'clock in the morning in the winter time in alaska that's not real fun <laughs> it's like right. oh man i really wish we had a bathroom right about now when you gotta sit your butt down on that outhouse seat <laughs> but you know but my dad like he um he ran a heater out there and like it was low on the generator and you know and so he got it to where it wasn't so bad um but but yeah i mean i didn't like, like I said, there were so many other people that were doing the same thing that, yeah, there was other ones. And it wasn't really until like when other kids would point it out, like, right. Yes. That's when I was, you know, and as I got older and because, I mean, I did a lot of secondhand store type stuff and, and all that. And so, you know, and they're in like the mid eighties when like name brand things like really started becoming a big issue you know in like the late 80s and stuff like that that's that's when other kids would bring it to my attention that like I was subpar or whatever or like I was like I was a thrift store kid and mm -hmm. you know or whatever instead of like I didn't go to JCPenney and get my stuff I, right. I don't think I shopped at JCPenney until I was like 35 years old <laughs> right you know, like, yeah i mean that's yeah shout out to how old i am i guess but like that was like Classic. the place that the cool kids went when they're i was still floating like, around yeah you know well, yeah i mean they're still out there but it's just not as like nowadays i don't know what the cool place is but either right yeah i'm still a thrift store girl i just i'm with you oh and now though i love it though when i can tell somebody like i got this for three dollars that's it. My wife is the same thing. She's always excited about those deals. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, man, we came up on, on coupons. My mom was notorious for those. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not talking about on the phone either. We had to cut it out of the newspaper right. or magazine, bring it with you and this, you know, and argue with like, no, this is, this is still good for this day. And, and as we move forward. Yeah. And, and I, I asked my question because, and, and we'll talk more about this as we go on, but you know, there's an, and I may have said this to you, I can't remember what we talked about on our last go around. We talked about a lot of stuff, but, but there's this old quote I always hearken to that Kenny Rogers said that his mom told him, which is, uh, you're no more as an adult than what was put into you as a child. And that really resonates with me because I found that a lot of, a lot of times, not always, the people who are most oriented to maybe uh, earthly things, individualism, uh, you know, just really anything that in diversity and inclusion oftentimes have an introduction to that early on. Right? It was it was brought to them in a particular way that really shows up later on in life and, and just in a more burgeoned, to more seasoned, you know, way. Right. It's demonstrated a little bit differently that that's you see it's honed in a particular way. And because you bounced around, I was wondering how relevant that was. So continue that journey for us. You 
you left Alaska and where did you go next? And then take us into sort of your freshman year at high school. Okay, so from Alaska, we went down to Nebraska. Well, stopping in Colorado along the way, uh, spent a little bit of time in Denver before we went to Nebraska. Um, like, yeah, my third grade year, all right, I left Testamina Elementary School, and then I went to school in Denver, Colorado for a little bit, and then I went to school in Ogallala, Nebraska for a little bit, and then Venango, Nebraska for a little bit. And then we settled in Mitchell, Nebraska, the end of my third grade year. And I was there through fifth grade. And then we went up to Montana. Um, and I spent sixth grade in Great Falls to the end of sixth grade. And then like the last couple months of sixth grade and all of seventh grade in a little town called Geraldine. Um, that's like the school was K through 12. It was the first time I lived in a lot of small different places throughout. But it was like one of the first places that the whole I was like, everybody goes to school here like it's k through 12 for like the right. whole like wow. all of these towns that are around like it was like it was like the smallest place i'd ever been but it was it was really cool yeah um it was an interesting place to live <laughs> and then we went to um oshkosh uh, my eighth grade year and then yeah i was there all except for that little bit of time my freshman year that i was here in phoenix uh here in arizona and that's where I, when I fell in love with Arizona, you know, and at first I just, I fell in love with Phoenix and I just knew when I grew up, I was going to be back to Phoenix and it was, Phoenix. it was like the coolest place ever. And I did, but then I discovered Tucson and wow. A lot more you your see, speed. You can, yeah. I like Tucson. I tell people, <laughs> I, I, I tell people I have Goldilocks syndrome. This is a thing that I don't know if anybody else says that or if I coined it myself. I like to think that I coined it myself. What but is it? <laughs> like, I'm always like, I always want everything just right. Like, I don't want it too big. I don't want it too small. Mm. I don't want it too hot. I don't want it too cold. I don't want it. Right. Fit, you know, I want it just right. Like Goldilocks. Yep. You know, gotcha. and like Tucson is like the perfect Goldilocks scenario for me because it's big enough to where it's got stuff happening and it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Like some mm -hmm. of the bigger places that I've lived and I've spent time in um, like Denver and, and Phoenix. And right. when I, after my accident, I spent a lot of time out in Philadelphia because I went to the Shriners hospital out there. And so like these big cities, but then it's got the heart and like the kind of feel of like those smaller towns that I also grew up in and love like Oshkosh and all these, the, the, the small knit tight knit communities mm -hmm. that I, I knew how much were kind of like vital. Like, like I said, when I was an, a kid in Alaska, those small knit, you know, those friends that were only like, there was only a hundred people around in those 20 miles circles. Well, it was really important that they all got along and worked together. Cause like I said, you clear your property then I'll help you, you know, and we can help build each other's houses. We can help build up these towns and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's why I love it here is it's like, it's, it's small enough to where people still care. Like not that people don't care in bigger towns, but it's just a different pace and a different attitude in really big cities than it yeah. is in really small towns. But it's like still big enough to where people aren't all up in your business all the time, like a really small town. But people care. People care here like a small town. And so. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. I mean, I'm, you know, being from Boston, which is a major city, without a doubt, much like the ones you were naming, um, it, everything goes really fast. And from there, I went to, I uh, lived in 
full-time elements in this way. I lived in North Carolina, which is my first introduction to really honest space and, and greenery that shows up differently. And, you know, I wanted to go to Dunkin' Donuts being from Massachusetts. You know, that's what we do. And Dunkin' Donuts is, I mean, any, any turn, every gas station is a, is a Dunkin' Donuts. And even if there's not a gas station, there's a Dunkin' Donuts anyway. Right. In North Carolina, I had a ride about 20, 24 minutes just to get to Dunks one time. And I was like, wait a minute. That that's uncommon. So yeah, I'm introduced to this level of space in, in Tucson, more spacious than that. And so it, it grows on you differently for someone who's from Boston and from a big city, wasn't expecting it. And when I remember actually uh, going back home one of the first few times to Massachusetts to visit family, and I felt almost claustrophobic. I was like, oh my gosh, how do people drive on these streets? I, I became, you know, brown nose and all like, not brown nosing, but like I, I stuck my nose up slightly. Like, how do people drive yeah. on these streets? And it wasn't because I was any less the guy I was. It was just I had so much experience now with some space that I was like, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how I did it. <laughs> you know, I blame Tucson for that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt when I when I first went out to Philadelphia, because that was my first experience of like the East Coast big cities. Like I'd been in Anchorage. I'd been in Denver. I've been in Phoenix. Like those are all over here, though, where you like you said, you have space. When I went out to Philadelphia the first time and I saw row houses and all that for the first time. And I was like, these people don't even have a yard. Like their house is right, just like, right. and then like another house and then another yeah. house. I was like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, colonial style. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Double deckers, triple deckers, as we would say yeah. back, back in the bean. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned an accident a second ago. Um, and I want to I want to talk about that a little bit because as we talk about your journey and your pursuits, I know this because we talked before. I know you also had an interest in medical school at one point in time, or at least becoming a nurse or in this particular this particular space. Uh, and so, share with me this journey into the, the the medical perspective, right? This 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 decision you had for you, and then. We'll talk about maybe some decisions that had to be made as a result of maybe the accident um, and, and what made you change your path. Yeah. Well, just a small correction. Um, I have always been interested in performing and all that. Like uh, the first time I was on stage, I was three and a half years old. But nice. when I was in high school, um, I like, I'll just be real clear. My dad was never really supportive of my creative pursuits. He was always one of the, you need a real job. Like, yeah, that's fun to play around, but you should have a real job. And so when I was in high school, I was thinking, okay, well, I was going to go to school to, to do massage therapy because I've always enjoyed giving massages. Um, people will say like, I have magic hands. I'm mm -hmm. a little bit of a healer. Um, I'm also like, I consider myself now, I like some people don't believe in a lot of this, but I'm an empath. And like, I just kind of know, like if somebody has got like a knot in their back or whatever, I can just like right there is where you're hurting. Right. And like, kind of, and people are like, Oh, wow. Um, and that's just always something that I've been gifted in that sense. All right. And so I was on my path to go to be a massage therapist, but I started working very young. I was a waitress um, my freshman year. Um, as soon as I turned 14, I started waiting tables 
and I waited tables until I turned 16. Um, and in Nebraska, you can get your CNA license when you're 16. That's where the nursing comes in. I, um, I quit wait, waiting tables and I got my CNA license. I was, a, I was a nurse's assistant at a nursing home. And that's when I had my accident, um, is a few months after I had gotten my, um, CNA license and was certified mm. as, a, a, as a CNA. And, um, through that training, you know, you have to get certified in CPR and you have to, you know, learn first responder things. And, you know, you have to learn all, all of the stuff in order to get your CNA license. And so then at the time of my accident, I really put a lot of that stuff to use. Okay. And the fact that I was going to, to school for the massage therapy, um, that year in high school, I was taking, instead of regular biology, I was taking anatomy and physiology. And it was December. It was right before the end of the, you know, um, first trimester, because in Nebraska, they do trimesters. And so like the four quarters they do here, it's a different mm -hmm. system out there. <laughs> but anyway, we were, the, the, we were, um, we were getting ready for our first finals, basically of the year. And I'd been studying for my physiology test that was going to be on Monday morning. Um, and this was the weekend beforehand when I had my accident. And so studying um, and in physiology, we were learning the nervous system and the bones and the muscles of the body. Like I had to like on a diagram name all of the 206 bones in the body and all of the muscle systems and how they all worked and explain how the spinal cord worked and, you know, and all that stuff. Okay. That was what I'd been studying all weekend. And I'm on my way to work at the nursing home. And there was a lot that was going on in my personal life. My growing up was interesting <laughs> on a lot of different levels. Um, sure. Not only from moving around, but I, it was a very, somewhat tumultuous uh childhood with my parents not always having the best uh rapport with one another um sure. I, it was somewhat of an abusive household at times uh, to be mm -hmm. quite honest i'm um, not towards me but between my parents okay sure. um and so dealing with that you know having turned 16 i had a friend that had gotten she'd graduated before she'd gotten an apartment like two blocks from the high school I told my mom that morning, I'm like, hey, I, I'm moving out. Like I had moved out once when I was 14 um, because of things going on in the house. And then I came back because my mom and um, then, yeah, I just told her, you know, I was like, you know, I, oh, I want to be in town. We lived 15 miles out in the country, out on dirt roads. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I want to be in town so I don't have to, you know, I'm working. And I was. I was very active in school. I was in choir. I was in drama. I was in pep club. I was vice president of the pep club and president of the FCCLA. And like, I was, you know, doing stuff always and, or working, you know? And so driving, you know, a half an hour out to my house or whatever, you know, or at the end of the night, you know, cause I go and work out and do like, weightlifting and stuff in the mornings because I was part of powerlifting. And so I'd do that nice. before school, go to school all day, get off of school, have like 30, 45 minutes to like chill out for whatever till I had to be to work and then work till 10 o'clock at night and then drive all the way home and then study. And like, that was my life, you know? And so I was just like, if I'm in town, 
it'll just make life so much easier. And so I told my mom that morning, you know, that I was moving out. I'd also broken up with a guy that was wanting to like get married and settle down and stay in Nebraska for the rest of his life. And I was just not ready for all that at 16. And I already knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in Western Nebraska. I mean, Western Nebraska is great. That's not where I wanted to be forever. And I already knew that I'm like, no, this is, that's not the path that I want to be on. And so I broke up with this boy. I told my mom I'm moving out. Like all this stuff was going on and I'm on my way to work and it's Sunday afternoon and my car was a 76 Torino, Grand Torino. It didn't look real good, but it had a rebuilt engine and it rode real smooth on the dirt roads. And so Uh I was, I was just cruising, singing myself, me and Bobby McGee singing to myself because my radio was broken. My seatbelt was also broken, which ended up saving my life because the night before, after I'd broken up with the guy and all that is a whole other story. But the night I was on my way home from work and I hit a soft spot in the gravel. You know, I was doing like 45, 50 normal dirt road speeds, kind of fishtail just a little bit just enough to feel oh that's a soft spot in the road right there when you drive dirt roads every day you notice those things and you kind of remember those things and where they are you know it's just kind of you deal with that's it. right that's part of driving dirt roads all the time and so i'm on my way to work and i remember that spot that i'd hit the night before coming up and i looked down and i was doing 110 my gosh and so i took my foot off the gas i didn't hit the brakes because you don't do that you know that's you know you don't do that on a dirt road you hit your brakes and you'll for sure you know wreck and so you let the car slow down on its own but i was still doing about 87 88 miles an hour when i hit that soft spot and it put me driver's side first into the ditch and the ditches in where i lived in western nebraska they're they're irrigated ditches so that's Mm. way you know so that way if there's any rain or anything like that off to get to the fields so the ditches really, really are- quickly really quickly john i mean in- interject mm-hmm. did you did you know that that soft patch was coming up when you popped your head up because you said it was something you kind of registered and remember yeah when you yeah i remembered roads, was- i remembered it coming up and so like i looked down and that's when i realized how fast i was going because i i, I gotcha. was just kind of singing and i was kind of thinking about everything that was going on in my life at sure, the time sure. and just kind of singing and driving and i had no idea that i was like going so fast until sure. i remembered that spot coming up and i looked down and i was like oh yeah, and i okay. like i took my foot off the gas and but yeah i was still going like 87 when i hit it and it took me and those ditches are like three four feet deep three and a half foot deep is usually like the standard and so it took that you know and the torino is really long <laughs> and so it took my front driver's side corner first and then my car did like cartwheels basically and um front driver's side rear passenger side it did that three times and um and this is studies from the reports from what the you know officers and stuff like that did because I told them the last time I looked down it was between 85 and 90 but I wasn't sure and they said by measuring the skid marks and all that they determined that I was doing like 87 to 88 and they're the ones that said by like the dents of the car and the impacts in the wheat field that i landed on that's how they told me like the trajectory of what had happened okay because it was all so fast that it's not like i knew what was happening that we were doing cartwheels and all that like i didn't right right i I 
closed my eyes, gritted my teeth, and I remember I opened my eyes once and I saw like the backseat and sky and ground and like that's that's what I remember of it. But I was conscious. I was um like it all happened really fast. There's just like the split, like there's a little bit that I don't remember, but I didn't have any concussions. I didn't have any kind of head injuries at all, other than some road rash on my cheek. Um I was really, I was hardly hurt, um, considering the fact that I was thrown from my car and, but I broke my back when I hit the ground. I broke four ribs and one vertebrae in my back. I broke um, T12, which, you know, in the, the spinal that has six cervical, then 12 thoracic and five lumbar, and then your sacrum and your coccyx, your tailbone. So I'm like down lower mid back is where I broke it because when your body's falling, you naturally kind of ball up. And so that balled up point, that, that, that kind of one vertebrae that kind of sticks out when you kind of curve your back, that's what took the full force and full impact of my fall. And mm -hmm. it just kind of um, T11 wasn't cracked, wasn't hurt. L1 wasn't cracked, wasn't hurt. But T12 basically exploded into my spinal cord. Wow. And um, when I was laying there, that's when the nurse training and the knowledge of the muscles and the bones and the nervous system that I'd been studying all week came into play because as I was laying there at first when the noise stopped and I opened my eyes and there's this tire <laughs> is spinning above my head I was really close to the car smashing me it landed on my right shoulder and I was kind of pinned under my my right arm and my right shoulder was pinned under the car but like it was so that's like how close it was to smashing my head wow. and me Jeez. being dead so um so everything's the noise stopped I opened my eyes the tire's still spinning above my head and I'm just like and I felt like I was on fire I felt like my legs were on fire. Like I thought there was flames and I looked to see if there was fire and there wasn't any flames anywhere, but I couldn't move my legs. And I knew right away what was happening. I knew right away that I'd broken my back and I'd severed my spinal cord. Mm. I knew instantly. And so then that's when the nurse's training came into play and you're taught as a first responder, like, how you're supposed to talk to somebody to kind of keep them from going into shock. Mm -hmm. And so I started talking to myself as a first responder. I was talking to myself in third person, like, okay, John Lee, you have broken your back. You've severed your spinal cord. You're going into shock. You need to remain calm, as calm as possible. Let's take a deep breath. And so I try to take a deep breath and the car is on me and I'm like, okay, but I can't breathe, you know? So now what? The first thing they do when they tell you, if you know somebody has broken their back or broken their neck, don't don't, don't move. move them. Right. That's the first thing they teach you. But I'm trying to remain calm. And this car is on top of me. And so I'm like, okay. And I get kind of shoveled because luckily the wheat field that I landed in had just been tilled so the soil was soft it had been worked recently um so I was able to kind of like the ground was soft enough so I was able to kind of like shimmy out from underneath the car but then I was still like pinned up against it and I still 
when I tried to take a deep breath just to kind of calm down, like I felt like I couldn't get that breath that like I really needed. And so I'm like, you know, at this point, I'm still seven miles out in the country. The closest house is a mile and a half away. Um, this is a Sunday afternoon in Nebraska. It's December 6th. There's just not a lot of traffic on a dirt road in the, yeah. in, <laughs> on a Sunday in Nebraska. Okay, there's just not. So I'm like, okay, I don't know how long it's going to be till somebody finds me. I This is 1998. I did not have a cell phone. Like there's people that had cell phones, but I was not one of them. Um, and so... I made the decision, like, I'm like, I got to get away from this car. Like, I can't breathe. I'm, I, I don't know if I'm going to end up, like, I'm talking to myself out loud. I'm like, I don't know, I could end up with a collapsed lung or something. And I know some of it was just probably fear and panic and all that. But also, like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And this is an important aspect of me just being able to relax a little bit. So I grabbed a hold of the back of my right leg behind my knee. I grabbed a hold of my pant leg. I had nurses scrubs on because I was on my way to work. So they're baggy and all that. And um, so I grabbed a hold of my pant leg behind my knee and I rolled over onto my stomach, which I probably did more damage to my back. But with everything that was going on, like, who, I don't know. It, it some, doctors said, decision. some doctors said, told me that no, like the damage had already been done. I didn't really mm -hmm. hurt it that much because I did, I did like a really, kind of like they do teach you how to roll people and how to move people as like stiffly as as you can and so I tried to do that as I was rolling myself over but after I was rolled over I could breathe and I was able to relax a little bit I was able to keep myself calm until somebody came and it was about an oh. hour let me okay so you referenced this 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 mindset of being calm multiple times and i appreciate that because that is something that i think anytime you're in a situation that's bringing you stress regardless of the level it's that something we tend to tell ourselves but this the story you just shared your accident it's a, it's a whole different ball game i mean it's not even yeah. the same conference to use a sport analogy um and but you deliver it so simply just had to remain calm johnny your your t12 is shattered your your, your spine has been severed um was it i mean the obvious question is was it that simple for you i mean you you've you've lived this 16 years one way and then you're like that's it was it that simple or 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 no i was able to keep myself calm and keep my i'm sorry to say this but my shit together until somebody got there and then once my once the first people got there who happened to be a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me in school and his girlfriend who was a year behind me in school is who found me first. They just and happened I, to be driving by? Yeah, they just happened to wow. be driving by. They were on their way. They were taking the back road to Chapel to, or to wherever. Because, I mean, you could either take the highway or you could take the dirt roads or whatever. And they were just wow. happened to, they wanted to take the back road that day just for fun and to enjoy the view. And that I started throwing dirt. I was crying. I was screaming. I was totally freaking out. At that I was point. able. Yeah, that's when I was like, I kept myself as calm as I could, like while I was alone. And I don't know where that came from. And 
like, yeah, it sounds like it real easy, but like, I don't, you know, I mean, it really, I mean, I was really, I was having to talk to myself like the whole sure. time and like, right. breathe, breathe, breathe. This is okay. You're okay. This is okay. You know, just try to stay calm, just stay calm, just stay calm, just stay calm. And then Christine and Jimmy show up and I'm like, oh, I broke my back. I can't get up. I said, I want to get up, Christine. And I can't get up. I said, I broke my fucking back, Christine. And I just want to move my legs and I can't move my legs. And I'm, lost my shit so oh. sorry for the no 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 i got you <laughs> and i can imagine christine and jimmy were probably i mean they weren't expecting to see johnny on the side of the road period yeah. never mind with i mean not even with a broken down car forget about a destroyed car and a broken back yeah. um and they just happen to be cruising by now did you have a i mean did you have a notion that well i know chapel's coming up and somebody may or may not come by this way or you at any no, point I time mean, I was that. closer to Oshkosh than Chapel. Um, I lived like, because Chapel and Oshkosh are about 30 miles apart. And I okay. lived 50 miles and I was headed towards Oshkosh. So, okay. um, yeah. And Jimmy and Christine, they didn't have a cell phone either. Christine stayed with me while Jimmy went to go find a neighbor with a phone to call 911. And then it happened that a little while later, um, a, a, a woman who happened to be a farmer's wife came along and she had a bag phone because the farmers, they all had, <laughs> they uh -huh. had, you know, they had the bag phones and all that. And so she, she's the one that called and she called even before talking to Christine or talking to me, she just seen my car, seen Christine land in there. And so when she called, she thought that, you know, she reported that there was more than one person in the accident, like that she saw, like I had like this blanket that had been in my car. Like she said that she thought there was three people. And so when the ambulance first showed up, there was like, who's all involved? Who's always with you? And I'm like, nobody, I was by myself. There wasn't anybody else involved. And so like they had sent two ambulances, you know, because yeah. Yeah, yeah. like the farmer, she just, you know, she just came up and seen the wreck and called, you know, and, but yeah, I was by myself. And then the, the EMT people who were people that I, you know, the, the nursing home that I worked at is at the other wing of the hospital, like in Oshkosh, the hospital and the nursing home were in the same building, just separated, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like, these are people that I know and I kind of work with, you know, they see me all the time. Um, the director of nursing was the director for the hospital and the nursing home. And, um, but anyway, they were picking me up and I telling them, I think I broke my back in the lower thoracic and they're like, it's okay. We'll get it figured out. We got to get you in get you checked out. And I just kept telling them I broke my back in the lower thoracic broke my back. <laughs> and I get into the emergency room and it was uh, an ER doctor who was, uh, he hadn't been there a lot and I'd never met him before. And so he didn't really realize that I worked at the nurse, you know, any of my background or whatever. <laughs> But then I told him, I'm like, I broke my back, I think, in the lower thoracic. And he's like, it's like, how do you even know that word? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Like, I have a physiology test tomorrow. And he's like, well, I think you probably would pass it, but you're not going to be taking that physiology test tomorrow, honey. Right, you're not going right. to be going back to school for a while because, yeah, you have broken your back and and the, the whole thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. I want to ask one more question here that I want to pivot actually a nice little segue off of what you just said about school. But before I get there for my listeners, you know, as I mentioned before, Johnny and I are friends and we chatted offline a little bit about this in our last 
uh, when I was on your uh, Johnny's particular podcast piece, um, and Johnny gave the green light to kind of share this story. Um, so, but I want to make sure people know that uh, you should never go up to somebody and ask them what's your story, what's your experience, about any of their identities, just off the cuff. So, I want to make it very clear to people that Johnny and I had discussed this a little bit beforehand. And Johnny was willing to share her story with that. In that, Johnny, to double back off that and then transition to a different question, is it sharing that story now, all these years later, decade plus, couple decades, all these years later, um, is it is it difficult? Is it difficult to share? Has it ever been difficult to share? Um, and I don't necessarily mean from the perspective of, you know, I'm tired of people continuously asking me. I mean, emotionally, when you you were conscious the entire time. So as you ref, as you're relaying it back to me, I have to imagine you're you're watching it happen again. Is it difficult to share? Is it challenging? What what are your thoughts? How do you feel about sharing the story whenever you find yourself doing so? Yeah, it's it's a story that I have shared many times, and sure. and yeah, just to touch on what you have said, it's it's there are people that are willing to share their story and very open about their story, such as myself. There are sure. other people who are not as open about it they don't like to talk about it because yes it is a reliving of that for me for me it's always been kind of helpful and for me I would rather people just ask if they're wondering or or whatever or I'll just tell them just to and that's something that I'm hoping with my organization and stuff just representation of people that's the problem is people oftentimes when I come across them, the ones that are just like, oh, wow, it's because I could be the first person in a wheelchair that they've ever met. I've had yeah. that happen a lot. And then, oh. and, and I'm an outgoing person. I'm mostly extroverted, especially when I'm out like for karaoke or something like that, that I enjoy to do. Like I'm there to have fun. And I usually kind of, bring a party even if it's only in my head you know I'm there <laughs> to have fun and I sure. and I like and you know I like to shoot pool I like to dance I like to mingle I like to do all these things and a lot of times people are very surprised by that because they don't expect somebody in a wheelchair to do anything right. really right. in society like people with disabilities are really just thought that they just I don't know what people expect of me I know that a lot of times though, just from their reaction and their is they don't expect me to be how I am. Right. And I've always been this way. And that's one thing that being in that small niche community of Oshkosh at the time of my accident was really amazing for me as far as the support network for my family, the support network of my school, like I mean, some of it I felt was kind of fakish because, like, I was never, like, one of, like, the popular kids, you know what I mean? But then kind of mm. after my accident, I kind of was there for a little while. Um, but it was also, like, but people cared, you know what I mean? I didn't feel that it was fake, although it, part of me was like, eh, this is kind of weird that, like, this person was never talking to me last year. And now they're, right, like, right. now they're here trying to help me. But I didn't feel like they were being fake, you know what I mean, when I talk about these people because, um. I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like it took, it was weird at first. It was definitely weird at first coming from that. I'd always kind of been the outcast. I was always the new kid. And even sure. though I'd been in Oshkosh for a few years 
And Oshkosh is the town that like my great, great grandparents like helped found. Okay. My dad graduated mm. Garden County High School. My aunts and uncles graduated Garden County High School. My aunt was still the secretary of the high school when I went to school. I had cousins in school with me. But it, I was the new kid. I was the weirdo from Alaska and that had lived all over the place and was like in this little podunk town that I thought like everybody was stupid because it was so like 20 years behind everything else. And I'm like, right. and so I never, like I was always part of like the outcast crowd in, in school, you know, not that I didn't mingle with everybody because I'm a mingler. I can have friends. I had friends that were jocks. I had friends that were preppy. I had friends that were, but not really like my really close friends. They were all like the misfit geeks that everybody picked on like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that was yeah. my And then after my accident, then everybody cared and everybody cared. Right. Right. Everybody. Interesting. Right. You know, right. And it was, it was, it was, and at first I did, I thought it was fake. Like at, at first looking back now, like I can see the genuine care that they really did. Like it just kind of, you know, it shook them to their core, but then it wasn't, you know, and then after my accident, though, my oldest son is named after a very close friend of mine that not even a year after my car wreck was in a car wreck um, himself and four other, three other um, kids from our high school. And he was mm-hmm. killed. The other mm-hmm. three survived, um, not without injuries. None of them were paralyzed, but um you know, the, the one girl did get some severe concussions and had, you know, migraines and had other issues from that. The one kid's feet were severely, severely burned and he had to have skin grafts and stuff like that on oh. his feet. Like, so they were all came out able-bodied, but still like, it's not like they unscathed, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Jasper um, was killed instantly and that's that's who my oldest son is named after and then it was after also after that that like people really I don't know it was a different not only could I connect with the kids from the accident that the survivors and you know I became closer with them but then just everybody in the school not only were they rocked you know what I mean like they got rocked and then you know and it was just the shock of like your life can change in an instant is what they got with me. And then a year later, they got the lesson of not only can it change, but it can end in an instant. That's right. And so it gave the kids in my high school, I'm going to get all gushy a little bit. I'm a gushy type person, a different perspective, I think. Sure. Sure. And I think. <laughs> you want to pause, Johnny? Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I just, no, um, okay. I'll talk through it. Cause like I said, I'm a gusher and I just want to be real. Um, sure? looking back, I don't see it as being as fake as what I initially had felt that they were being. Mm-hmm. It's just, they were trying to process it too, of like the shock of the change and then the shock of the loss. And even like, like even through me though, and through an injury, like they teach you, like you go through like the the stages of grief, you know, like the six stages of grief. Was it sure. six? I think it's six. It, it always anyway. changes. It's seven. I, I saw ten. Yeah, one point I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Five, six, seven. However many stages of grief. Like you go through that, 
even like in my accident, you know what I mean? You go through those, like the grief of the, the loss of my legs, you know what I mean? To where, you know, like that denial phase and that angry phase and that, you know, and then that acceptance phase and all that, like, no matter what trauma, I guess, people deal with in life, they have to, you know, you kind of have to go through those stages to, to learn from it, to work past it. And even when you're a bystander, you know, but like I said, I mean, it was my school, my whole high school had 250 kids in it. You know, my graduating class, well, we started out with 22 and we had 19 when we graduated, you know what I mean? But we were the smallest school in the class, but like, that's small, like that's tight knit. Like there's everybody knows everybody, you know, whether you're friends with everybody or not, it doesn't mean you don't know them. And so those people that may not weren't necessarily my friends, like they still knew me, like they still knew me close enough to where they cared about me. They didn't want what happened to me to happen to me. And so them trying to help me afterwards wasn't fake as fake as sometimes I maybe thought it was at first because I did. I definitely did at first. Like I talked some crap about a few people at first. Oh, I and, get it. I mean, if, if, if know, folks weren't there, like, why are they yeah. want to be my friend now when like last right. year, you know, I mean, cause I also growing up and um, I'm out, I've been out very long time. I'm pansexual. When I was younger, that wasn't a word. I was right. out as bisexual, <laughs> you know, in the nineties, right. that's what it was. Um, yeah. But being out as bisexual when you're 15 in a small Western Nebraska town, um, wasn't real fun i had dead animals oh. thrown on my car i was called a dyke i was called all kinds of things all the time okay. and then this next year i wrecked my car and then everybody wants to be my friend right. when like right. just two yeah. years ago you're calling me a dyke and putting dead squirrels on my car right. okay right, right. you right. know but right. it was right. that is though but they do care you know what i mean like it was a it, it was just now like as onlookers you know of that shift of like it just brought it home though. Like it could happen to anybody, you know, yes. anything can happen any, at any point in time. Nobody is promised anything in life. Um, I am one that I do believe things happen for a reason. Yeah. Um, and I do feel that I'm in my chair for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that like, not to say that it's always easy for me, and I know a lot of times people think that I always have this like, oh, sunshine type of, oh, everything is great because they see me in public. But I deal with a lot of depression. I deal with sure. a lot of anxiety. I deal with a lot of frustration just because the world is not equipped or very accepting of people within the disabled community, such as myself. And there's just been a lot of pushback that I've gotten just because. I'm in a chair, whether it's, you know, with housing, with doctors, with jobs, with everything, you know, Mm. it affects, you know, it affects every piece of my life all the time, every day. But I try not to be bitter about things like that's the thing that I tell people. They're like, oh, well, how can you I don't know if I'd have such a positive outlook. It's like. Well, I don't really, I mean, you're, so listen to what you're saying and then think about the alternative that you're giving. Mm -hmm. Like I try to be as positive as I can and try to, you know, overcome and adapt and 
all the things that I can because what other choice do I have? The other choice is sit and be miserable. And like, I probably would off myself a long time ago. Like that is not an option. Like, let's not go there. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, like, why is it that society just thinks, oh, well, I'm not going to expect anything of you now or really, you know, like, even though like ADA laws have been around for since the seventies, which isn't real long ago, but it's like, there's still so much stuff that's gets grandfathered in that gets, it's just, it's frustrating. And so that's where I get, that's where I get angry sometimes. But I also feel that I'm in this chair for a reason because a lot of people they're not going to be as boisterous about things as I will. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. raised to stand up and speak out and to speak up for other people that won't speak up for themselves. And, you know, sometimes that means that people aren't going to like what you have to say, but it takes somebody to say something in order to create change. That's right. That's right. And no matter what you're working towards, no matter what, what it is like it has to be voiced in order for anything to ever come of it and so when i talk to apartment complexes about their you know what they call accessible when i'm looking for housing because i've moved around a lot because of housing issues and what they consider accessible and then i still can't even get my chair through a bathroom door or whatever you know because i mean here in arizona almost anything that's garden level is considered wheelchair accessible. Well, just because I can get to the front door without a step does not mean that the inside of this place is suitable for me to be able to function within. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Let me, let me jump in really fast, Johnny. Um, No, no, because no, 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 no. Everything you said was going to be a part of the next, a next question anyway. And so I wanted to get a little bit more out of it and I, and I was trying to figure out which one to jump into. Um, thank you for all of that. First and foremost, I mean, that was really profound. And, um, I think you had a lot of information there. That's going to be valuable for some people who may have had questions prior to hearing you speak that you speak your truth there. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, I have a couple questions here. I want to ask, uh, but I'm going off of what you just shared. Let's go with, and, and I, I can infer some of this from what you just said, but I want you to put it into your own words and you can repeat some stuff or go in a different direction. First off, inclusion, a lot of people don't really know this, that term and, and, and practice academically comes out of the disability community, the disability studies, inclusion around things like universal design, um, critically examining what you just named, just because I have access to the front door doesn't mean I have access to the bathroom or some things that are inside the, the building. So in, inclusion has a strong space within the disability community because that's really where it's birthed out of, at least on, on, on paper. So my question to you, Johnny, is prior to your accident, pre-accident, post-accident, uh, how has your understanding of diversity and inclusion and equity changed since your accident versus maybe where you were with it before the accident? And the reason why I say you can repeat stuff is comments like not being able to get into a bathroom might not have been on top of your mind pre-accident but it's there post-accident. So how has your understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion changed? Or how has the accident impacted that since the accident? Yeah, well, I mean, definitely when you have to deal with something firsthand, it changes your perspective. Changes things, right? Um, yeah. yeah, but having, okay, I want to backtrack just a little bit and tell you a little bit of an interesting 
whatever. I've already said, like, I have some gifts, okay, that I believe in. And when I was younger, one of my uncles, okay, I had lots of aunts and uncles. Like I said, I grew up with hippies, all right? These people were actually my aunts and uncles, but, you know, all right? <laughs> but my Uncle Din, um, he, he had been in a motorcycle accident in the 70s. And um, he used a wheelchair a lot of times. He was able to walk with crutches, but a lot of times he used his chair. All right. And he lived in Mitchell, Nebraska, which is in between Scott's Bluff and all that. And that's kind of where I lived. And so um, when we lived out there from third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, that time frame, um, we were around my uncle Den. My dad built a ramp on our trailer so that way Den could come over. My uncle Dan and Aunt Doe could come over and visit, give him someplace other to go than him than his own house. It's not like my dad was um very you know like yeah man you want to come over i can't have you come over we don't have a ramp and my dad my dad can build anything okay my dad is a construction man he's a welder he's a you know like he you need something built he can build it all right yeah, yeah. so you know he's like oh build a ramp and so he built a deck and a ramp onto our trailer so Dan could come over and so that gave me a little bit of a knowledge okay that was my firsthand knowledge of, and I, we had other, you know, um, I'd known other people in wheelchairs and stuff like that too. When I was growing up, even in Alaska, a real close friend of ours, uh, Cindy, uh, she uh, had MS and stuff, but like she would have her, her, like she had uh, sled dogs for her and she'd have them pulling her, her wheelchair and she had them trained just like knee and high and hut and, all that like they train you know the sled dog she had him for her wheelchair and so sure, like yeah. i knew that growing up and i knew um a, a man with cerebral palsy who was in a in a power chair that my grandma helped a lot growing up and mm. so like i'd been around disabled community and like i volunteered with my grandma you know to like i did like bingo calls and i read to people and stuff like that and spend time with the elderly at different different stuff and one place that my grandma helped out a lot was called Cambridge Court and it was for elderly who had developmental disabilities and yeah. so and that's where um, I learned a lot of, about people there as well but going back to Uncle Den and the fact that he could use crutches sometimes and so then sometimes when we we're especially at around his own house like he, he used his crutches or he'd be in his other chair that he just would sit in, you know, and his wheelchair yeah. would just kind of be there. And I'd always hop in it and like kind of go around the house and up and down the ramp and all around just to kind of feel what it was like, kind of play a little bit. But also he brought it to my attention one time because we were having like he was having like it was uh, like a Memorial Day something. It was like a big get together. All right. And I wasn't going to be the only kid around. I have older siblings, but my siblings are a lot older than me. So a lot of times mm -hmm. I was the only kid. Um, but this was a day that there was going to be other kids around. And so he had his wheelchair put up and I was like, Uncle Dan, where's your chair? And he's like, oh, I have it put up today because I don't want all the kids playing on it. And he's like, because, you know, he's like, it's not a toy. And I'm like, I know it's not a toy. I said, I'm not playing with it. I'm practicing. That's what you said. That's what I said. And I'm wow. nine and a half years old. I said, you know, I think I, you know, I'm going to be in one one day and I want to practice. I need to know what this is like. 
And um, Mitchell is nine miles outside of Scotts Bluff, okay? And Scotts Bluff is where I was flight for life to. And that's where I spent the first month after my accident is up at Regional West in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And my Uncle Dan still lived in Mitchell at the time. And he came and saw me after I got out of ICU. And um, when I was just in my regular hospital room and he came to visit me and he's like, do you remember telling me that you thought you were going to be in a wheelchair someday? I said, yep. He goes, so I guess you really were practicing, huh? It's like, I guess. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> so I don't know. Like, I kind of, and I do feel that I am boisterous about things. I have stood up for things. I've gone in front of city council. I, I was, I served on um, student council at both of the colleges that I went to, um, WNCC and Scotts Bluff and Front Range Community College in Westminster, Colorado. I served on the student government and made both of those campuses more accessible, made sure that like um, helped get like in Scotts Bluff, I helped get like the buttons outside the bathroom door. So that way, you know, like you have buttons to open the front door, but like, so you got to go to the bathroom too. You know what I mean? Like there should be buttons outside the bathroom door. There should be, you know, there was a lot of things that I helped get accomplished at the campuses that I went to and in the and even in Scotts Bluff I I took it to the city council meeting one night just the fact that like I couldn't even go down like there's blocks in Scotts Bluff that it's like you get up there's a curb curb cut out here and the blocks out there are long sometimes okay like so you go like all the way down here and then there's no curb cut out on the other end. So then I got to like either go all the way back down and around and get in the street or I got to like precariously because I'm a chicken. I don't like going off of curbs and stuff like that if I'm by myself. Uh, I'll and, blame you. and, you know, and so it was like these are things that I've brought to attention. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, I mean, if my purpose is to kind of help make the world a little bit more accessible and help shed a light on the fact that just because somebody's disabled doesn't mean that they're just going to sit around and not have a life. I'm all for it. Like, that's what well, that's what I'm here for. And I feel that in the pit of my soul that sure. like this, this happened for a reason and that I am a voice and I, I might not always be the best voice because I might not always word things the best or whatever, but at least it's a voice that I don't feel there's been a loud enough one out there yet. And so, I don't have a problem getting loud. So yeah, good here we you, go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you for, sharing those things uh and that story about being nine in your uncle's chair sort of prophetic yeah and so it has changed my perspective that was your you know and my approach but it's just made me stronger and more boisterous that's right you You always had it it was always there once i had to face it myself and then it's in my face like you can't like i said i can't get away from it so then That's it's right. blatantly yeah. obvious like how many problems there are. And so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, and as black folks, right? Uh able-bodied black folks and just black folks in general, but coming from an able-bodied perspective, to your point of like once you live it, you, know, you see how obvious things are. One of the one of the 
the critical perspectives black folks take amongst each other, but also communities in general is, you know, you're, you're biologically black and then you're also psychologically black. And to your point, it's when you become psychologically black that you become aware of like racial injustices, systematic issues, some of these things that you glanced over before because maybe you had the perspective that everybody's equal and, you know, we're all one, even socially. It's not until psychologically you shift your understanding and become conscious is the word you may have heard and we, and we tend to use that that kind of changes things. I got a couple more questions for you, Johnny, if I may. I don't want to hold you up, man. This has been great. But I've got a couple <laughs> more questions for you. Um, you, you talked about uh, making things more inclusive. A piece of that is also language, especially within marginalized communities. Your organization is called Differently Abled Entertainment. So my question to you is, why differently abled and not disabled, for example, uh, or disability leading that particular piece? Why differently abled? And what was your, your thought process around choosing that language in particular? Okay, I'm glad that you brought that up because I've actually, I've gotten, I want to start with the fact that I have gotten backlash about okay. the choice of that name because there are some slurs that some people consider it a slur when you're talking about the disabled community, um, which I also want to have it known that I did not know that when I chose the name. Sure. Um, I wasn't like blatantly trying to rock the boat. It just kind of happened. And I didn't realize that I was going to um, offend some people. And that was never my intent by choosing sure. the name differently able. My thought process behind it is the fact that it doesn't matter if you're able-bodied or disabled or, you know, you have a seen disability or an unseen disability or whatever your background may be, wherever you're coming from in life, we are all people and we all approach life differently. Like I am still able to do, I would say 90% of the things that I did before my accident, I just have to do them differently. You know, there's very few things that I can't. And even those things that I'm like, well, I can't. Well, there's ways that actually, I mean, I could. Like, I mean, I miss, okay, I miss the feeling of squishing mud between my toes. But I mean, I'm still able to stick my foot in the ground and push my toes in the mud if I so choose. Although it doesn't have that same sensation, you mm -hmm. know, that that feeling of the oosh that I like the gooshy. Okay. <laughs> so like, that's what I'm saying. Like there's still, but like, and I'm not like, we were really big hiking growing up in Alaska and, and Colorado and Montana and all these places that have, you know, hiking. All right. I grew up climbing mountains. And so now like I can't climb a mountain, but I still like I have mountain bike tires on my chair because I like to go like, I mean, I have kids, we go to the park, there's lots of rocks. I do other little off trail stuff that like as hikey as I can get, I guess, sure. Um, sure. within a certain, you know, grade scale and all that of an incline. Um, I try to do as much of that still as I can. It's not the same as you know, when I was younger and I cl climbed Camelback Mountain and sitting up on top of Camelback Mountain and checking out all of the city, like I can't do that. But I can, you know, go out and enjoy nature and find a little trail that's accessible. 
there's not a whole lot out there, but there's a few, um, you know? And so like, that's the thing is I have to approach life differently, but I mean, even you as an able-bodied person are going to approach life differently. And another able-bodied person is going to approach life differently. And that's the thing. And that's the message that I'm trying to get across is that everyone, everyone is differently able. And our whole thing is, yeah, we want more inclusion and we want proper representation because within, you know, the disabled community, the make up 26% of the adults in America. All right. But yet we're only represented in film and TV one to 2% of the time as far as the disabled community and like stuff like that. All right. But then you take that one to 2% of the time that we are represented and 95% of those roles go to able-bodied actors. Able-bodied people. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah. So that's where I'm trying to, you know, somebody doesn't have to have a disability to get involved in my organization, mm-hmm. you know, because I do believe that we're all differently able. However, I just want to start seeing the film industry tv industry all of it start including people like if you got a you know like just because i'm in a wheelchair do i necessarily have to play a person in a hospital bed or have to be like right or whatever why can't i not be the ceo of a you know a badass company or why can't i not be like a serial killer in some movie or why can't i be you know why right. is it that these people like why do we have to only play like what they're considered disabled people have like in a, no, in like, in, a, in, a, in a position that's oftentimes to use the term pitiable right that that is exactly. presented as in you know we need to find some sort of sorrow for this individual yeah exactly it's either like it's either yeah you're supposed to either pity them or be inspired by them right. and that's right. the only yeah, right disabled people and there's either oh i'm meant to inspire or i'm meant to be pitied why can't i just be meant to be oh a a person like that's that's a the mom on a sitcom that who cares that she's just in a wheelchair (laughs) she's like the mom in a sitcom that's it you know that happens to be in a wheelchair like those are the things that i want to see it's not just being represented like okay if they're doing a story that has to do with somebody that's in a wheelchair then i want somebody in a wheelchair to play them yes but i want to take it that next step and be okay well we're writing a movie about a bank robber let's say that the bank robber is in a wheelchair or is an amputee or is something like why like why not like why not shift it up a little bit you know yeah. You know, why movie. is that not part of the convo? Like why why in the boardroom when we have these pitches ideas, why is that tossed out? As as is is people are people seeing it as unrealistic, as improbable? I mean, why you know, piece of the question is why is that the thinking? You know what I mean? Why Yeah, exactly. And I mean, a lot of it is the thinking is because that's all that people have seen. Like they haven't had a that's chance right, yeah. to represent. And like I said, like when I go out and I'm the first person that somebody's met in a wheelchair and they're surprised by the fact that I know how to shoot pool and that I play karaoke and that I have kids and that I've done businesses and that I do the things that I do. They're just like, what? Tell me more. Yeah. Right. Right. And I'm not the only woman in a wheelchair that has kids. So why is it so shocking to where, why can somebody that's in a wheelchair or whatever play a sitcom mom, but have you seen it done yet? That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's not just it's not just on television, right? We know this is true in in comic books. I mean, there in in fantasy. I mean, there's been a lot of fight for that. I mean, I can only I was a big Batman fan. I can only think of one person in that entire universe who shows up in a wheelchair, and that is Oracle, who who was at one point in time Batgirl, um, and she plays a prominent role in his life. But I'm talking the the Batman universe and the DC universe. Now, there's others out there. I mean, Professor X, of course, we know from X Men. That's a whole different universe. He's a really prominent character. But your point, right? Stan Lee I, was I, amazing. Sorry to interrupt there, but Stan Lee yeah, yeah. and Marvel were really. Stan Lee was different. They were always ahead of the curve. He was ahead of the curve as far as across the board. Of, That's of right. People with disabilities and seeing people like everybody had a superpower to Stan Lee. You know what I mean? Well, like whether you were disabled or not. Like, and that. Yeah. So. Well, his whole take on 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 X Men is really a reflection of the world in a different way, mm -hmm. right? Race riots, feminism. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole nine is there. So uh, mm -hmm. I, there's no surprise there, right? You name me Stan Lee. But my point with that is, and I did this on a talk years ago with a good colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Dre Alatamendi, who was also on the chopping block several seasons back, right? This this notion that if there's anywhere in the world where you should be able to step away from reality a little bit, it's it's fantasy. Uh, but what we come to find really quickly is that the reality of fantasy, and I have a talk on this, the reality of fantasy is that fantasy is reality. That because you're in a wheelchair, even in this fantasy, you know, you, ha you have to appropriately be in a wheelchair in this way. And because I'm Black, even in this fantasy, I have to be from the projects or uh, my, my past has to be riddled with drugs or violence. You know, even in fantasy, the one place that we should escape that. And so, yes, kudos to Stan Lee for sure. Uh, but we just wish it was even more widely represented, which takes me exactly. to which takes me to my second to last question for you, Johnny. Um, differently able entertainment, your mission or purpose. And I found this on the website. It doesn't say mission explicitly, but it reads as one that says differently able entertainment strives to place differently able people in the forefront oh, yeah. of the entertainment industry by providing them a platform to showcase their talents. Yeah, you were on the mock-up, not correct version of our website the old one that didn't oh. have our mission that was that one's um, live just so you know yeah I, it needs <laughs> okay. i've been trying to but yeah okay if you, so um yeah our mission is to promote and encourage differently abled artists in the entertainment industry by producing content featuring their talents that's technically okay you all heard it first. Okay, so let's go with let's go with that statement there. Thank you, Johnny. And let's get that other one. We got to get that off there. But we we have your state. We have your your mission here. So in that, my question to you is: Talk to us about the type type of entertainment. You, you mentioned the importance of representation. Um, is DAE only focused on in theater, or are you uh, just talk to me about the type of entertainment and what you all strive to accomplish with the organization? Okay, we are trying to cross the board on everything because within the entertainment industry especially when it comes to making movies like you need all of it you need writers you need musicians you need models you need actors you need all of the things to make something happen and so that's what we encompass like um we interviewed you for our magazine seize the day and then and that's also going to be as you mentioned a podcast of sorts we're working on but you know we have our magazine that's already been established for a while seize the day and you know that's Yay, where we of course. raise awareness um for the marginal marginalized causes as well as seen and unseen disabilities through that magazine 
And so, but we host photo shoots um, regularly and we've helped over 30 aspiring models achieve their first publications in magazines other than our own. Cause we do publish, you know, pictures of our work in our magazines, but um, we try to, our goal is to help build, you know, portfolios, build resumes and teach people if they don't know how to build their toolbox, their entertainer's toolbox, as we call it, um, with the headshots, resume, the all the things that you need in order to present yourself as a package when you're going out to audition for roles or, you know, whatever you're trying to pursue, you kind of have to have that toolbox. And so that's what we're trying to provide people on affordable way to build that toolbox and to showcase it and, you know, build their resumes. And so by, you know, by being published in different magazines, um, it looks good on your resume as an actress or as a model, just because um, if you can be published, then they know that you're marketable, you know, and having been in magazines or whatever, it it's a good boost, right? So even if you're an actress and you're not necessarily wanting to model, it can help your career. And then obviously yeah. if you're a model and you're wanting to model, then it's going to help, you know, then that's what you need to be doing anyway is getting those publications because the more publications you have, and then you have a nice resume and then you can go after an agent and then you can actually really that's be right. getting good gigs. All right. Good. But you have to have all that ready to present to somebody, you know, an agent isn't just going to pick somebody up off the street and just because you're that's a pretty right. face, that doesn't mean anything. Like mm. you got to have your headshots. You got to have all that stuff. And that's one of the things that being from the disabled community, even though like, okay, I, as I said, I've been in, interested in entertainment since I was really little. Okay. Yeah. And um, in seventh grade, I got the, I was the only middle schooler cast in the high school play. And every year since seventh grade or no, I was sixth grade, my bad, sixth grade, every year since sixth grade, every year through high school, even after my accident, like before my accident, I was in a year. And then my senior year, I actually got to be in another play. And then all through college and all that, I was in theatrical plays all the time. And in college, I had a scholarship. I was assistant director of the theater department. I was president of the theater club. I came out of college thinking, all right, I know I'm talented. I mean, yes, I'm not, you know, may not be the best or whatever. I don't ever want to sound like I'm being cocky, but I'm talented. And sure. I have a good resume. And so here I am, world. Like, let's get some roles. And they're all like, yeah, but you're in a wheelchair. Yeah, but you need professional headshots. And those are $1,500. Yeah, but it's a nice dream you have there, little Missy. But you don't have what you need in order to achieve it. Mm. That's what I found, like, after, you know, when I was really trying to get serious about yeah, pursuing course. It was just the fact all right when you're disabled and i was a single mom at the beginning of a lot of things and um you know finances are tight and you know i had really big opportunities come to me at times but then it was always there was something that it needed money like yeah here's this really big opportunity but you need those 1500 hundred dollar headshots that you don't have and so that's why our photo shoots are 20 dollars a pop and so I want people's dreams to be within their reach. Yes. And then also like for any of our volunteers, 
Um, and this is what I always tell everybody, because there's even people that I know, I know how, what it's like to where you just don't even have 20 bucks. That doesn't right. mean that you still don't have a dream. That yeah, still doesn't mean that you still don't want that opportunity. Right. And so for any of our volunteers or anybody that tells me like, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but like, I still can't even do the 20 bucks. I'm like volunteer for us. If you volunteer for us, then you don't have to pay. Like, because you're <laughs> helping me and I want to help you right. and need all the right. help we can because we're just starting out. And that's I mean, and look at it. want to continue moving forward is like, that's like our kind of scholarship program. I mean, it doesn't come completely for free. You know, I ask them to, you know, we have weekly meetings and I ask people to like share our social media stuff. And it's not like really hard stuff that I'm asking, but it's like, that's what I'm asking in order, you know, I will let you come to everything for free everything yeah. free and i've had you know we have one of our models who she has been published in multiple magazine she's got a portfolio of probably well over 200 pictures of all kinds of different looks and different themes and different all that and she has never paid us not one dime wow not one dime and that's because she helps you know she's a volunteer and she works hard you know, but this is somebody that has developmental issues, you know, and, you know, is she's one of those people with unseen disability, you know, like yeah. people look at her and they think that she's okay, but she's deals with some other things and yeah. stuff. And, and so, I mean, those are the people that I want to help. I mean, but this is a person that is very talented and very, you know, they have to, you kind of have to be very clear with them about like, this is how you have to do things because a lot of people with developmental disabilities, you have to talk to them and approach them differently. Sure. But it doesn't mean that she's not capable of still That's right. being a vital part of our organization. That's right. You know? That's right. And so I give her jobs that I know like she enjoys and that she, she loves, you know, she just loves to be a part of it, but she can't afford, like she lives on a disabled person's that's strictly disabled, you know, cause there are people that are disabled, but yet can still maybe do something on the side. Like she's not able to do that, you know, and she, because of the housing situation and all that, like, basically, I mean, she don't have nothing at the end of the month. So those are the people wow. that, you know, and I know what that's like. I've been there personally, like to where the one thing standing between me and my dream is some money. Like, okay. And I know, yes, the money makes the world go round and all that, but you know, like I just, especially, I mean, people within the disabled community and not to be like, want, 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 but I mean, God, we already got it hard enough. You know what I mean? Like we're already sure, dealing sure. with whatever it is that we're dealing with. And, sure. you know, and everybody, you know, has got that, you know, like no matter it, everybody's got yeah. their different struggles. Like that's the whole thing is we're all different. We all come from different struggles and all that, but I want to be able to help those that have that dream that the world isn't out there to help them mm. at mm. all get towards mm. their dreams. Like there's nothing out there in the world. Like what I feel like I'm trying to do with differently abled entertainment that like there you know that you can gain you know the gain experience gain things because yeah i mean we do a theater play we have the two magazines um we do a theatrical pre um play once a year 
we're in post-production for one film that's already done filming we're in pre-production for another film that's going to be filming um hopefully this fall we're working on still trying to gain sponsors and all that but our movie that's in post-production in terror it's premiering at the loft on may 7th get your tickets any left and they're going to shoot me a a, a text on that or a message this way i can i can lock that in yeah yeah because it's gonna be it's gonna be good the the trailer is on our website which just so you know not the one that you went to our new yes, website I know that I've been working on um <laughs> yeah because that's a Wix one that um was started with um who was my co-founder um but now I mean he's been very busy uh with the with his acting career and so has stepped away from differently abled entertainment I do have a new vice president but I am now just considered the sole founder and president. Sole founder. And yeah. President. Um, just there's been some shifts in the last couple of years um, since things have first, first started out. And that website was when we were first, first starting out. And then sure. it was just kind of like, oh, and then I didn't even know it was still active. So there we go. But our new one is our day, like O-U-R-D-A-E dot org. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, on there, um, we have all of our events listed. We have our merch on there. We have ways for people to contact us if you want to volunteer, if you want to model, if you want to take pictures. Um, because that's the thing. I mean, we want to help promote artists on both sides, like whether you're behind the scenes person yep. or in front of the scenes person. Um, there's this one meme that I share almost every year because it comes up and it's been coming up in my stuff for a while but it's a picture of an iceberg all right and it's the perfect representation of the entertainment industry the iceberg is like you see the tip of the iceberg you see the actors Mm -hmm. you see the people in front of this you know those are the ones that you see but in order to get those people there there's the makeup artists there's the cameramen there's the sound guys there's the there's the producers there's the all the people that you don't see okay yeah we want to help build up not only the artists that you do see but the people behind the scenes and so we're we work with you know upcoming photographers like if you want to if you're just starting out photography like we're all inclusive like we have people on our stuff that's been doing it for a really long time that they'll tell you some pointers or we'll help you out or you know whatever like we want to be a platform for people to learn and grow together, showcase their art, have some fun, and be able to then take what they get with us and apply it, you know, to something that can make a difference in their lives, for like sure. a good a good job, you know? <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something that they could, yeah, I got you, for sure. Yeah. And, and so, ourday.org. And I'm I'm gonna actually have you re- recite this for me because um, my next and final question to you is gonna be around where people can get in touch with you. But before we do that, I wanted to say one more time, thank you, Johnny, for the interview and for your time and for shedding light on not just d- disability in general, but also how DAE, Differently Abled Entertainment, can really assist people who are interested in in the arts and entertainment. And, and recognize that representation not only matters, but is available for you, at least if you're here in Tucson and by, by accessing folks. So what I wanted to ask you now, Johnny, as we close out is um, 
how can people get in touch with you? You just named a website. So maybe recite the website again. Is there any uh, social media uh, handles, maybe anything, any personal handle you want to offer, anything like that? Yeah. And just to touch on real quick what you said, yes, we are based out of Tucson, but we have writers on our magazine team from all across the United States. Um, nice. All of our meetings for our volunteers are held digitally. So if you're somebody that's interested in like web design or graphics or editing or all that, we live in the day and age that even if you're in the same town, you don't even have to go to the interview. You know, yeah. we we live in the time of Zoom calls and email and technology. And so, yes, we are based out of Tucson. And yes, our photo shoots are here in Tucson and stuff like that. But we have fingers all over the nation and uh, we're getting to where we're all over the world a little bit. Nice. Our magazine is going to Australia ireland canada like we're getting out there and so i just want to put that out there too like yes okay physically if you're required to be here in tucson for a said thing then yeah we probably can't do it but i've had photographers do digital shoots with people over the internet i've had you know um people that you know like i said we do everything over google meet so it doesn't matter where you are in the nation or in the world. Like if you want to try to be involved with differently abled entertainment, you can. And yes, we are all over all of the social medias. Mostly we utilize Facebook the most. And we have our public page that you can look up differently abled entertainment on there. We also have a public group attached to that page, differently abled entertainment. And then we have a private group where a lot of times I share things a little bit ahead of times, like, before we do public announcements, we do it in there first. And that's differently abled models, actors, and entertainers. And it's a private group that you got to answer some questions um, in order to be accepted to. Um, sure. But pretty much we accept you as long as you answer the questions in a suitable manner. <laughs> you know, yeah, good. Um, you know, that's our our filter as far as that group's private. We do a little bit of like sneak peek, a little bit of like, oh, we're going to do this thing. And if there's only like 10 sign up spots, I let it out in that group first, you know, for like a day or two before I announce it to the rest of the world. So it's like yeah. the people that are in there kind of get the inside scoop. It's like, and a, do like a membership. It's almost. Yeah. Like, like the, like so, the, uh. The, the platinum membership versus you know, yeah. you know yeah, yeah it kind of is it's like the it's the inside scoop That's right. um, yeah, place yeah. to be so um and then we're on instagram um and that's you know we're trying to get better i'm trying to build up my social media team a lot of the things i do have volunteers and stuff like that but i still i'm learning to delegate and i'm learning how to have people try to encourage people to do the jobs I delegate to them, considering that they're all volunteers and there's no right. really any kind of consequence or anything like that <laughs> if you don't follow through. Uh-huh. Um, so then I still a lot of it gets left for me to do in the end. You know? Um, and so yeah, that's why like our our website, it's in the process, you know, everything's kind of like I'm I'm working through things, but I am one human being trying that's to right. do kind of a lot of this kind of just on my own and as I, I go it. winging it and learning as I go. So yeah, we're on all the social medias. Um, like we're on Twitter, we're on Pinterest, we're on, um, TikTok. Uh, we're on all of those, but we oh. don't utilize them as much as we utilize Facebook and then Instagram. Okay. 
Well, you're on the social medias. You have the website. And yeah. Rday.org. Um, and it's coming together very nicely. And like events, if you're just interested in events, is events.rday.org. Like we're, um, we're getting as an O-U-R, like our. As an R, yes. As in yes. belonging to all of us. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. My <laughs> my you. accent, my accent kind of messes, messes. No, I got you. I get, I get, like, I get it. Our, 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 day. All right. Well, thank you, Johnny, again, for a wonderful chat today. Always a pleasure getting to connect. I haven't seen you in person in a while, so hopefully we get to cross paths. Yeah. on the microphone sooner than later um, right all right y'all well in that it's me dr sherrod robbins i'm here with johnny john lee campbell and you are on the chopping block here at visceralchange.org